Have you ever heard that all religions are pretty much the same? I agree that all religions are pretty much the same if we put Christianity to the side. All religions are the same in one way or another because they're about the self. Driving force of each are making sure that the self is happy or pure or doing good works in some cases even to find salvation. But Christianity is fundamentally different than anything else in all the world. And as we enter into our passage today, the confusions that sometimes surround Christianity are actually made very clear through the preaching of the word as done by Peter. The confusions that anyone might have are answered. And they're answered in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that the very fundamentals of, of Christianity are found. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Why is what he has done important to all of us? Last week, as we opened chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we saw that the Spirit of God was powerfully poured out onto the followers of Christ. And they began to speak in many different languages through the power of the Holy Spirit regarding the mighty works of God. And the response of those who were witnessing, witnessing these things were of a variety. Some were saying, what are we to make of this? Others were saying, they must be drunk of wine. Well, we see today, Peter actually stands up with the eleven to address and to bring clarity and explanation as to what is going on here at Pentecost. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let's, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He wants them to know that they are not drunk despite them speaking in different languages because it's only nine in the morning. That's what it means at, to be at the third hour of the day. But Peter here gives explanation as to what it is that God is doing. And in fact, he preaches the first sermon that launches the beginning of the church. The most glorious, Christ-centered beautiful presentation of the gospel that the world had heard. And as this sermon is Christ-centered, beloved, I pray all of our sermons are Christ-centered because he is pulling all of God's works together in one person whose name is Jesus. And so the question I want to drive our time today is this, who is this Jesus whom Peter is preaching we're going to let the text answer that question for us. And the first answer for us is found in verses 16 through 21. Who is this Jesus? Well, he is the one whom the Spirit speaks about through the prophets. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. 
In the final days, as the prophet Joel predicted to the people of Israel before they departed into exile, the Spirit of God was going to fall on all people, meaning all flesh, including the Gentiles, just as Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 36, just as Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 31 of his book. And Peter wants the crowd to know that what was prophesied by Joel is actually being fulfilled here at Pentecost. And he says, in the last days, he points to the last days. And the last days, as we know it to be, is the era between Christ's ascension into heaven, which happened just days before this time. And as we see down in verse 20, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, that's when Christ returns. So there's a period of time in which the spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And that all types of people are going to prophesy. And this is a broad pouring out. He says young and old, male and female, rich and poor. Those are whom the spirit is going to speak through. They're going to prophesy and dream dreams just as the old prophets of old did in the Old Testament. Joel is foretelling a day in which every worshiper of the true God will be prophets. Jesus hinted of this, John chapter 4, that we're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And now we see here in the scriptures that God has set aside all people in whom his spirit falls that will prophesy to these things. Now, I don't want us to be confused. There are people who have the gift of prophecy that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's not talking about that. That's set aside for some. Uh, we see in the scriptures that the responsibility of, of, of prophesying or teaching or proclaiming the word of God is given to pastors and elders in the church. But what he is saying here is that every believer will have a beautiful responsibility and now the ability as the spirit is poured out to speak of the mighty works of God that have been accomplished now in Christ Jesus. Every believer has the rights of the Old Testament prophets and God is now exposing all the glorious works by way of the spirit that he has accomplished. And is this not what we do? Do we not gather together and teach one another and admonish one another with the word of God? Uh, uh, families, do we not have the re glorious responsibility of teaching and proclaiming the mighty works of God to our children? Uh, church family, do we not have the responsibility now to take the things of God that we have learned as the Spirit has made known to us the works of God to proclaim them to the nations? We see this outpouring taking place right here. So the Spirit speaks through Joel and the Spirit speaks now through his people of what the mighty works of God are all about. Uh, we see in verse 19 and 20, he says, I will make wonders in the heavens and above the signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. He also gives us a picture in these last days of, of these eschatological images that will occur as the word is going forward and as the spirit 
is poured out. These major signs and events, they, they accompany the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you might have in mind uh, the darkness that overcame the land when Jesus was crucified. Uh, we see that before Christ comes, there will be elements that point God's people to a day in which judgment and glory are both coming. The awesome day of the Lord, the day of Christ. Have we not seen that every prophet and all the apostles point to this day? The day in which Christ will come and make a bride to himself. And it's in this season that the spirit is poured out. And it's in this season that the people are encouraged from all nations. Look what it says there. To call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. So in the last days, as the spirit is poured out on all people, the word of God goes forward in every peoples from all nations can call upon the name of the Lord and they will be saved. The question that should arrive, arise in our hearts is saved from what? What is it that we need to be saved from? Perhaps you're thinking maybe you need to be saved from your situation in your life right now or saved from your enemies who don't like you, saved from your circumstances or maybe even saved from yourself. Beloved, when God says you need to be saved, he is saying that you need to be saved from him. You need to be saved from the judgment of God on sin. His rightful justice that he pours out on people because they have sinned against him. He is a holy God who is never not just and he must punish sin. Everyone's sin and all sin must be punished. If this shocks you in your, in your soul, it, it's probably because the darkness of your sin has not yet been understood in your heart. If this shocks you to the soul, it might be that there's not a clear understanding of the holiness of God. You and I have fallen short of the mark of God. Each of us have sinned. Each of us were made in his image. And, and instead of worshiping the creator, we have turned to the creation itself and tried to yield the fruit of creation, making ourselves God. And in reality, there is a punishment that is attached for each of our sins because of this. And what is the punishment? It's eternal death. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. The wage of sin is death. That's the payment. We have to understand the need to be saved because of our sin. The great theologian and pastor, probably the greatest mind in American history, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this about us being in our sin before a holy God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. 
We might ask, well, how can Edwards write such things? That shocks the soul. Well, Edwards knew his Bible. He knew it well. He knew that man loves sin. He knew that man is addicted to sin, as it says in Job 15, 16. That, we, that we're vile and corrupt. And we like to drink sin in like water. Not always consciously admitting it, but always pursuing it. He understands that in man's nature, that we hate God. This is what is written in John 3, is it not? That man loved the darkness and he rejected the light. Is this not what Jesus said in John chapter 7 and John chapter 15, that the world hates me? Is this not what Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 1? That you were once alienated and hostile in mind? This is the nature of man towards God because of sin. And the treachery is man cannot save himself. Man is unable to save himself despite trying in every major world religion. He works and he tries, but his works are never counted as righteousness before a holy God. This is what Romans 4.2 says. Not even Abraham's works are counted as righteousness. No man can boast before the living God. In fact, it says in Ephesians 1, you cannot do good for you were uh, dead in your trespasses and your sins. Dead men don't make good moves. They don't make decisions. They don't make the right decisions. Beloved, we have to recognize that we need to be saved. We are dead, lost, and under the judgment of God. Have you reached that place yet? Have you recognized that you need saving? Have you arrived there? Ask yourself that question. If you are still saying, I don't think so, pray that you would listen a little more to what Peter is about to preach. So he gives the bad news that the need to be saved is there, but he follows up the bad news with some really good news. Who is this Lord who is able to save? Who is the Lord whose arm is not too short to save you? It is God himself. And in fact, with the great dilemma uh, throughout humanity, the need to be saved, God actually did something about it. Who allowed his only begotten son to, to put on flesh and to step into creation and to intervene. This is the plan of salvation. Jesus himself is the plan, and the apostles are witnesses to this, this plan, just as Joel prophesied. So who is this Jesus? Well, he's also the one whom the apostles witnessed. Look with me there in verses 22 through 32. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So, so Peter's about to walk the people through who this Jesus is that the Spirit is testifying to. And he starts with the humanity of Christ and the life of Christ. He was a man, but he was a man who God attested. That means that God authenticated. And how did God authenticate 
Jesus, well, by displaying mighty and glorious works through him. And it says these mighty and glorious signs that God did through him, as you yourselves know. He's right. He's preaching to the crowd. They know. They've seen these things. Do you remember that Jesus calmed the storm and raised the dead, healed the sick, and he cast out demons? I hope you know that God affirms that this is, in fact, God the Son, because he has done these things. And you know what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what Peter is saying to this crowd, because this crowd would have very much been aware of all the mighty works that Jesus accomplished while he was here on the earth. And from his life and his good works, Peter then takes them to the cross. Look with me in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up accord, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's telling them, this Jesus who did mighty works, you crucified. Now crucifixion, beloved, it was heinous. It was humiliating. And to pour salt on the wound, these devout Jews who are listening to this, this sermon that launched the church, they would have known that a man that hangs on a tree is cursed by God because of what Deuteronomy 21 says. And notice what Peter is saying here. He's saying that on one hand, this is a part of God's divine plan. And on the other hand, you are responsible for crucifying him. Now that's hard information for, for us to realize that this was a part of God's divine plan for the son. We see it here in Acts chapter two. We also see it in Isaiah 53 that it was the father's will to crush the son and to put him to grief. We see in Romans three that God put forward his son as a, a, a propitiation by his blood. That means to appease God for the penalty of sin. In Romans 8, God did not spare his own son, but handed him over to death. We see in Revelation 13 that it was God who decided before the foundation of the world that the son would be slaughtered. This was co-signed by the father. It was agreed upon by the son. This is the divine plan that God put forward. And how did he do it? He did it through the hands of sinful men. And that's why Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He wants them to know that despite knowing all of Jesus' works, that some 50 days ago, these are the men who are crying out, crucify him. And he's trying to bring this home to them. They, they delivered over to Pilate and, and, and Gentile sinners to be killed. You see these devout Jews still could not fathom, fathom that a suffering servant, Messiah, was a, a part of the plan of God. They, they were still awaiting a warrior king with greater might than King David. They're still looking for a kingdom that destroys Rome immediately. And Peter is saying, essentially, you have it all wrong. You have it all wrong. This is the plan that God has put forward according to his foreknowledge. It's not as if Jesus was some religious man that lived a few days and then died a pathetic death outside the city walls. This is being worked out by the sovereign hand of God as he was delivered over to sinful men. 
Friends, it might be easy for us to look at these devout Jews and to say, how could you have missed that he was the Messiah? How could you not see that he was the Christ? How How could you have done this? That's certainly what Peter is wanting them to see, that they have in fact done this. They are culprits of the slaughter of the Son of God. Beloved, I I want us to not move forward without us considering the fact that we are also culprits. In fact, it says in Jeremiah 14 that our sin testifies against us. We ourselves, though we were not at the crucifixion of Christ, the point of his crucifixion was to bear our sin on the tree. We are no different than these devout Jews who are listening to this sermon being preached. Why was Jesus killed? That's a question that flares up from this. Well, he died for his people. Because God's people's sin must be punished. Remember, going back to the fact that God must be just. God is holy. Sin must be atoned for. And Jesus died in our place. He died in the place of his people. This is called the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. We believe at the very center of the good news according to God, that he took our place upon the cross. It's the very theme, it's the very heartbeat of the gospel itself. Beloved, Jesus' death was nothing less than him taking the punishment for the sins that we have committed, taking on the death that we in fact deserved. This is the very heart of God on display This is how our sin is punished. This is how he shows his justice, which was satisfied here at the cross. He poured out his wrath, the wrath that was intended for us upon his son. Beloved, here's what I want us to see. In so doing, he has not compromised his own righteousness or justice because transgression does not get overlooked. As, I, as we said before, every sin is dealt with. It's either dealt with in the flesh or Christ bore it in his flesh. That is the reality that Peter here is preaching. And because Christ bore our sins, as Peter later wrote in second chapter of his first epistle, it now shows the holiness of God on display through his mercy and his grace. He provided a substitution. And this, beloved, is the good news. This is the good news that Peter is preaching to the church as it's being formed. God does not deal with us any longer according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. As it says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, He separates our transgression from us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Now does this mean that we are more valuable than the Son? No. The Son is always the focus of the Father. The Son is always working all of redemption through His Father, Jesus, is what unites all things in heaven and on earth together. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. 
He is the unity and the sum of all things. And so the plan of God does not end with the crucifixion of the Son. This is not some divine child abuse that happens here. God himself is not a murderer by letting his son die. But it's actually displaying his love, his magnificent love for a people who desperately need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be redeemed and saved. And the plan does not end there. In fact, after he shows his love, he shows his power. Look with me there in verse 24. He's talking now about the resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So man crucified him. But it is God who raised him up Just as it says in Romans 8, that the spirit raised Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ now dwells in us. Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to raise it up again. And this command is from my father. Death could not keep the son down. Though he was man, He is also fully God. Man is crucified. Man crucifies him, but God raises him up. And Paul writes in Romans 1, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. God raised him. And the pangs of death death were loosened because of it. Loosened for us, beloved. And look how Peter bolsters his argument by pointing to the scriptures which predicted this historical resurrection. Look with me there in verse 25 as he points to Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Peter is about to give commentary on what Psalm 16 really means. Because these devout Jews still think that David is the fulfillment in some way of Psalm 16. And what Peter is about to teach him is that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Here's the commentary he gives in verse 29 to these brothers. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God was sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He is specifically talking about Jesus. Jesus did not die, he did not see decay. He's prophesying, David. David knew that one was going to be from his descendants that would sit on the throne forever. He's prophesying about this here in Psalm 16. And Peter is saying, the one that you crucified, 
He's the one that David, whom you follow, is pointing to Christ. Why do you still look for David? David's tomb is right over here. Consider the one who is no longer in the tomb. This is how he's bringing this argument to them. He's letting them see what it is that they have done. Sure, David is a prototype of Christ. He is a man after God's own heart, and he reigned over Jerusalem for a time. But David knew also one was coming who was not going to taste Hades and whose flesh would not see decay. Beloved, are you following a man who still lies in a tomb? Or are you following a man who raised from one? And then he battens down the hatch even more there in verse 32. And he says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We've seen it. The one whom Joel prophesied. We've seen it. The one whom David said would not see decay. We have seen the one who did not decay. We have seen the one who came to life after he was crucified. The one that you crucified, he is now made alive and we are witnesses to it. The people might not have been, they might have been struggling with certain aspects of the resurrection, but they have already seen miracles of Jesus. But Peter is pushing the significance of the resurrection, the full plan of God on display. He was prophesied. He lived a perfect life. Powerful miracles accompanied him that God attested to be of the triune. And here he raised to new life. And then Peter preaches to them of a kingdom so great that they could have never imagined had God not told them. The one in which Jesus is king. And that's what we see in verses 33 through 36. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the one whom the Father exalts. Before therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day or excuse me, out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then Peter quotes David again from Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. David saw that Christ would ascend in Psalm 110. It is Christ who sits at the right hand of God forevermore, just as Christ said he would, recorded by Luke himself in chapter 20 of his gospel. And then he gives this beautiful confession, the church's earliest confession there in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Let all Israel know, all you devout men who have gathered in Jerusalem for the festivals, let him know, let you know that he is the one whom the Father has lifted into the heavens, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Peter speaks of his life. Peter speaks of his death. 
He's an eyewitness of his resurrection. And now he's setting a greater understanding of who Christ is as one ascended to the right hand of the Father who rules from heaven a new kingdom. This Jesus whom you crucified. This is no weak gospel appeal in this, is there? There's no mincing of words. There's no softening to the truth. He is telling them that this Jesus is king and sovereign anointed one. This is the one whom you have crucified. He is boldly proclaiming this. The one who betrayed Christ three times or or, uh, denounced Christ three times just 50 days ago is now standing up in front of thousands as he is informed and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and he is saying, you have crucified him. And he is wanting them to see that this one now rules and reigns over all. And in fact, as it says there in the text, he received from the Father the Holy Spirit that you are currently seeing and hearing. This is evidence to you of these things. The very first kingly act in Jesus' rule is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to testify to his death and his resurrection, to bear witness to the central truth that he is both Lord and Christ. It's it's an amazing thought when you think about it. With David being involved in this passage, uh, Jerusalem is is the city in which David ruled from. It's referred 36 times as as the place of David's kingdom in the Old Testament. And the very first thing that the, that the eternal David does is he preaches through, he allows the word to go forward to a new people to proclaim that a new kingdom is here, one that is everlasting, one that is sure and certain. And by the baptizing that occurs through the Holy Spirit, the church is born. The church assembles as it's gathered under this Christ, this new king. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. And Peter is calling on them to believe. He wants them to believe. And the Spirit still wants us to believe today. It appeals to us to believe. Lastly, who is this Jesus? He's the one who offers you grace in his name. He's the one who offers you grace in his name. Look with me in 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Imagine a sword going into a heart. That was their response. That was their reaction. They didn't know what to do. The word was preached and the spirit moved and God opened up their eyes to see that they had killed the Christ who is Lord. Can you imagine the scene? The spirit falls on them and all of a sudden they have these clear eyes that God has given them and they've just realized that the one that they've been waiting for, they also just killed. And they're cut to the heart and they ask, what should we do? Which is a confession. Is that not a confession? We have sinned. 
What should we do? Well, isn't it amazing that Christ didn't come down to kill them? Isn't it amazing that Peter didn't grab a sword and swipe the ear of one like he already did when Christ was arrested? But through the Spirit's work and the powerful preaching that takes place, salvation is offered in the name of Christ. Look with me there in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for those who are all far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What does it look like to call upon the name of the Lord in these final days? As the spirit is poured off, Peter says to repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. If you are amongst us today and you are not a Christian, you, you've never heard what I'm talking about or you don't recognize some of the things that have been preached to you today. I hope this gives you great hope. I hope this gives you great hope because like this mob that are listening to the sermon being preached and like every single one of us who are in Christ at one point or another, we are guilty before a holy God. We've got blood on our hands, holy blood. And because of your sin, the wrath of God remains on you. Don't you want pardon from that today? Don't you want forgiveness of sins today? If you are gutted in your heart today, then call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Repent and be baptized. And you might be asking, well, what is repentance? It's a work that is brought on by the Holy Spirit of God. That begins not, not to just terrify you of the judgment of God, but it actually helps you to see that you are a sinner. But then it infuses in you at the very same time this wonderful grace that is offered in Jesus' name. And, and a new work begins to bud in your heart. A, a, a new work that the Spirit does through the preaching of, of the gospel. Thomas Watson actually really helps us see what repentance is. He's an old pastor, and this is just a quick modified version of it. But first, you see your sin. You see very clearly where you sin against God or where you sin against people. Every sin ultimately is against God. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And typically, we see in Psalm 51, sorrow accompanies sin, the recognition of it. Just as these brothers are cut to the heart, have you ever been cut to the heart because you realize that sin is a big deal and that you do need to be saved? And then what we do is we confess our sin. That means to agree with God that we have in fact sinned. That's what the word confession means. Do you agree that you have transgressed a God who does not sin in his holy law? Do you agree? I agree that I am all the things that the law tells me that I am. And God says back, you are these things. That's what it looks like to confess. But when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As it says in 1 John 1. So there's bad news first, and then there's good news. 
you have an advocate who is Jesus Christ the righteous who took the wrath of God for you as a propitiation for your sin. So you agree with God where the penalty of sin is, which is death. And this brings about within us naturally just the shame of sin and the sorrow of sin and the hatred of sin grows. Is the spirit allowing the hatred of sin as it exposes sin in your life? You growing in hatred for sin? I love what one pastor says, the more bitter your sins taste, the sweeter Christ will taste. Psalm 119, do you ever hate every false way in you? Do you hate the false ways in you? Christ has borne them. There is hope. This is the wonderful news. It's so wonderful and powerful that God allowed the spirit to be poured out on the people to hear about it just as he is 2,000 years later all throughout the world. And then we are to turn from our sin. This is what repentance is. We turn from our sin, from all our sin. We recognize that we are a sinner. It's a movement so visible that people will recognize it. People will see that there was a way that someone was going and now they don't walk in that way anymore. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin. But when you do sin, remember, you have Jesus Christ, the righteous. But there is a turning, a, a violent turning, and not just a turning away from sin, but a beholding, a grabbing onto Christ and the mercy that is found only in his name for the forgiveness of sins. Have you taken that Christ and beheld him and looked upon him and found salvation today? That's what Peter is preaching. Thomas Watson said that he that hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. And he that indulges one sin is a traitorous hypocrite. Beloved, it's flowing in us, but we have one in whom royal blood, holy blood flows. And he protects us and he shelters us. And we find salvation under his wings. And then he says to be baptized. Baptism is simply an outward expression of the inward work that God has done. Baptism does not save you. Your work does not save you. Water does not save you. It is Christ who saves you. And then we get to display the work of Christ when we publicly say before our, our family, our church family, I have been bought by the blood of Christ despite all my sin. I was a part of an old community that yelled, crucify him. And now I'm a part of a new community that says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinful man. This is what God does. This is what God shows in baptism. What a mercy that God does not treat us as enemies, but treats us as friends. Very quickly as we close. Verse 40, and with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So he didn't, this isn't even the whole sermon. He taught them many times, and he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I would give you the same exhortation if you are not in Christ. Save yourself by turning to Christ 
from this crooked generation. And 3,000 were added to that number that day. The church was baptized in 3,000 people. A few responses for us today. First and foremost, just as Peter preached boldly the gospel of Christ, the same spirit now dwells in you. So go into your workplaces and to your family and proclaim the risen Lord with clarity and conviction and boldness because the spirit of God is with you. And the word of God should be in you. And we should have a natural hunger to save even our enemies if they would believe on Christ. Two, let this glorious gospel be your daily food. Isn't it amazing how you're going to wake up on Monday just like me, your pastor, and go, man, I forgot it. It's just my sin writhes within me. So let's go back and reset under the glorious reign of King Jesus, the one who purchased us. And then finally, beloved, repent and be baptized. If you are a Christian, we are, we are repenting our whole lives. We are constantly turning from sin because the Spirit is constantly showing us where our sin is and is constantly lifting our gaze and fixing it upon the one who is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. If you have not repented, I would call you to repent today. Believe on this Jesus and you will be saved and be baptized and and come and dwell with brothers and sisters who get to behold the glorious Christ together as we sing to him, minister one another, and tell the nations about him. This is what we're called to. This is the church. Christ died for sinners. God raised him from the dead. And he installed him in heaven as king. He pours out his spirit on all of us to testify to those who do not have him. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the first sermon that proclaimed the gospel. Father, though this sermon is 46 minutes, Lord, we pray that it does much deeper work than the length of its sermon. Show us our sin today. Show us the beloved lamb. Show us the one who has not sinned. Father, that we may worship and glorify your holy name. Father, work and move in the hearts of those who do not have you today. Those who these words just bounce right off. Would you break their hearts? Would you regenerate them through the power of your spirit, God? Would you save souls for the glory of your name? We pray this in Christ. Amen.